going to bring judgment. And we're going to see the beginning of that as we look at 2 Kings 15 this morning. Now, before we read uh, the first seven verses of that chapter, I just wanted to share with you a few titles that uh, other men who have taught through uh, 2 Kings 15 or preached in 2 Kings 15 have used for titles of this chapter. I, I think it's very revealing of what we're going to see. Um, I, I came across some titles like Spiraling Towards Destruction or Rush to Ruin or Rush to Judgment or God's Long Suffering Drawing Near to End or one of my personal favorites Musical Thrones <laughs> um, or When Sin Kingdom Comes Falling Down or Israel's Last Chance or Going South um, which I like to play on words because the North is beginning to experience God's judgment and the focus then will become on the southern kingdom as they are extended longer than the northern kingdom. But let's, let's start this morning with prayer and then we'll um, go to the first seven verses of chapter 15 in 2 Kings. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we know that we are all sinners ultimately deserving your judgment but yet you are merciful. You've provided a way for us, as we just sang this morning, through your Son, to have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, to have a relationship with you. I pray that everyone here um, and everyone who will join us later that may not be here yet will eventually come to know you as Lord and Savior if they do not. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to be instructed by what we see here, to be warned to be diligent, to repent of our sin, to confess it, forsake it, and seek by your grace to honor you in our lives, and to praise you for the mercy that you do have in our lives, but to take seriously our responsibility and accountability to you uh, to answer for our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, starting verse 1 of chapter 15 in 2 Kings, it says, <clears throat> in the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, <coughs> I'm sorry, Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done, only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The Lord struck the king so that he was a leopard to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house while Jotham, the king's son, was over the household, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of, chron of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Azariah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Jotham his son became king in his place. Alright, so we have here the introduction uh, to the king of the south. So we're focused on the southern kingdom here at first. Um, and we see that God judges this proud king. We're not given the details here of why. We'll jump over to Second Chronicles here in just a minute to see those details. But we see this king of the south, uh, Azariah, who is also known 
by the name Uzziah. And perhaps you're more familiar with that name. You've seen that in other places like the book of Isaiah. Um, so Uzziah is the king, and he, and he reigns for f over 50 years here, um, a period of relative stability. It's common in the kings that we see this turnover that happens um, with various uh, uh, kings uh, transitioning in power, but this is a pretty long period of time, and so there is this stability in the south for a while. Now, we're told in verse 2 that he started his reign when he was 16, and we talked last week that sometimes the counting of the years can be a little confusing in the kings because sometimes they overlap with their predecessor, and I think that was the case with Azariah or Uzziah here. His father was taken captive, so he started to become king um, earlier when he was 16, but his father returns at some point, and so there is some overlap where they're both considered king, and they call that co-regency, where both of them, in a sense, uh, have some responsibilities and rule. So there is some overlap in his time, but he is, he is the ruler for over 50 years, which is a significant length of time. And we're told that Jeroboam, as we discussed last time, this is actually Jeroboam II, and it's a grandson or great-grandson of Jehu, who has been king of the north and carried out that judgment on Ahab, and God therefore gives him multiple generations of kings um, in his family, which was very unusual for the north. All right, but we see Uzziah is the king, and notice what it says about him that he does what's right. There is some sense, and we're not given all the details about that, but there's some sense in which he did some good things, tried to uphold the law in, in the land of Judah, um, fights the battles of the Lord, leads, leads the people, leads the army, um, and there's some measure of good things that he does. Um, but we're also introduced in, in, in uh, verse 4, we're reminded, and this is key, we talked about this last week, um, in verse 4, we're reminded, though he did some good things, um, the high places were not taken away. The people continued to do the wrong kind of worship or worshiping of false gods, and Azariah didn't completely wipe this out, as was a responsibility of the king of Israel. He, like many of the other kings before him, allowed that to continue. Um, and this was a prevalent problem which ultimately leads to the destruction of Israel. But we see here that God also judges him and he becomes a leper. It, it says in verse 5 that he was struck uh, by the Lord and he became a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house. So here we have another example of one of those co-regency things. His, his time of rule is overlapped with his son because there's a period of time where he can't rule because he's a leper. But why does this happen? I mean, in this text, it looks like he did good. And then he's a leper. Well, what happened? Um, let's turn over to Second Chronicles and we'll see. We'll see what happens. On Second Chronicles chapter 26, we see the details of this event. <clears throat> And in 2 Chronicles 26, 
26, we'll start with verse 16. Now, in my Bible, this isn't inspired. Um, you, know the, you know those headings they put in the Bible were later editions, right? Those weren't inspired. So with that in mind, but my, my summary there says uh, pride is Uzziah's undoing, right? So I think that summarizes pretty well what we're going to see here. But we start in verse 16 where it says, When he became strong, his heart was proud that he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. How so? Well, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So there was a separation of duties in Israel. There was duty of king, whose responsibility to rule, to enforce the law. Then there was duty of the priest, which was to offer sacrifices, uh, to offer prayer on behalf of the people. Um, and then there was the duty of prophet. And, and the, these duties were separate, especially the duty of king and priest. No individual was supposed to do both of these things. Ultimately, we see Christ is the fulfillment of all of those duties, and he alone can do them all. But the king was not supposed to do the things of the sacrifice. If you remember way back with Saul, Saul was instructed by Samuel to wait for Samuel to come and do a sacrifice. But Saul gets impatient because Samuel doesn't show up, and the Philistines are around them, and they're afraid. So Saul forces himself to do the sacrifice. And that becomes part of what God judges Saul for, is he did that that he wasn't supposed to do. Well, Uzziah does a similar thing. He is offering incense that he's not supposed to do as the king. And we're told that pride is behind this. Um, now look at verse 17. He's confronted. Then Azariah the the priest, so I guess Azariah was a more common name. Um, it's the king and the priest here. The, the priest Azariah entered after him, uh, and with him 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been, been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. And <clears throat> he's proud, he's arrogant. So Uzziah, with the censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priest, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. And they hurried him... Um, out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. So, because of his pride, <clears throat> he is offering incense that's not his job. It is for the priest. <clears throat> and when confronted, <clears throat> I'm sorry, when confronted, he's angry, and God judges him and smites him with leprosy, and he is driven out. <clears throat> And we're told here in verse 21 and 22, well, in 20, well, I guess not here. 
Um, but back in uh, Second Kings, we're told that he's in a separate house for a while because of leprosy. They had to be separated. That was part of the law. They were to be separated if they were leprous. And so he was separated, not able to function as the normal king would because of this judgment of God on his life. So going back to Second Kings, um, <clears throat> we see that Uzziah is judged because of his sin. Now, I find this fascinating. And I think it's indicative of how God views people. When we look at this incident uh, about Uzziah, I don't know about you, but my thought is, I would characterize that man as a wicked man. But how is he described by the scriptures? The scriptures say he did what was right. That there, there were things in his job as king that he carried out seeking to honor the Lord. Did he do a terrible thing? He absolutely did a terrible thing. And the scriptures are clear about that, and God judges him for that. But yet it's interesting to me that his whole, whole life isn't characterized only by that incident. God is a thorough judge in evaluating people. And he recognizes when there is and how there is good and recognizes and rewards believers for that, but also highlights the sin, the wrong as well. I mean, think of one of our other favorite Bible characters, David. You look at what David did at the low point in his life, he does a hideous thing that probably no one in this room will ever do. And yet, the scriptures also speak of David as a man who followed after God's heart. And that was also true after that incident, once he repented and got right with God. So I, I find it fascinating, I think, in for us as people, we need to be careful how we judge other people, right? We tend to look at one bad thing and just put them in a category of they're terrible. But that's not how God sees people. And thankfully, if we're, if we're honest, we're thankful that's not how God sees us, right? Because we're a mixture of good and bad. If we're a believer, because we are sinners by nature, but the Spirit of God is also in his children, and so he works in us to produce good. And we need to confess and forsake the wrong um, and praise him for when he brings about good in our lives. And I, and I love, uh, you see in Revelation when, um, when there is uh, crowns given at the end, what, what happens to those people? They cast the crowns at the Lord's feet, right? Because ultimately there is recognition that anything good in our lives is to be credited to God, right? So let's remember to praise Him and thank Him, but let's also be careful in how we think about other people. We need to not let a bad thing control and characterize their whole life if, if that's not appropriate. Now, there are times we need to be discerning there are times when a particular sin dominates a person's life, and we need to be discerning and recognize that. But we also need to be forgiving and humble people, recognizing our own sin. That, that's the point. But let's look at how we see this 
constant transition that happens with the other kings um, in the north uh, as, we, as we continue the narrative. Looking at verse 8. In verse 8, we're going to see a transition of leadership in the north. Um, let's look at 8 to 12 here. It says, In the 38th year of Azariah, or Uzziah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in Samaria for six months. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam the first, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. Then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him before the people and killed him and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. This is the word of the Lord which he spoke to Jehu, saying, Your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel, and so it was. So Zechariah is that fourth generation son of Jehu. He is the son of Jeroboam II, who had a very long reign, about uh, 50 years. And then Zechariah takes over, so he is this fulfillment, but I, I somewhat chuckle in thinking about it. He, he is this fourth generation son, but how long did it last? How long was he the king? Catch that verse 8? Six months. So it is a fulfillment, but this is the beginning of a turmoil of change in the northern kingdom. This period of Jehu and his descendants that remained kings through multiple generations it is the last real stable rule in the north. Um, there's only going to be one more father-son combination, and even that's not going to last very long. We'll discuss that in a minute. But we have this transition. Zechariah's reign uh, was only six months. He was evil, it says. No surprise. He's the king of the north, right? That's all they were. Um, he was evil, and so there was a conspiracy to kill him, and Shalom becomes the new king. All right? Um, but um, let's, let's look, though, at another thing. I guess because one of the things that as I was studying Second Kings and thinking about Jehu and some of the things that he did, uh, we, we probably talked about that a year ago or something. I know you wouldn't even remember, and I don't even remember what I said to you at that time. But in studying Jehu, one of the things that I remember struggling with is Jehu was very aggressive at taking out the house of Ahab. And... God gives him this promise about these multiple generations uh, because of carrying out the command God gave him. But I've wondered, did Jehu go a little too far in some things? And I think we have an indication in Hosea. If you, if you go with me to Hosea 1, I think in some, in some ways he did. Um, even though much of what he did was a fulfillment of God's command to wipe out the house of Ahab, he was a little overly aggressive in, in some cases. So if you go to Hosea 1, it's a smaller book. Hosea 1, and I'm just going to read verses 4 and 5. It says, And the Lord said to him, 
Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So I think this is an indication in some ways Jehu did go a little far. Um, or perhaps um, even some of the things he did that he was supposed to do, maybe his motives weren't correct. But um, God is going to bring judgment on the north. And I, and I want you to see in chapter 4, um, Hosea has a little bit more to say about this. And it's exactly what we were saying in verse 4 of chapter 15 of 2 Kings about their idol worship. Look what, look what Hosea says in 4, 11 to 13. It says, Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. My people consult their wooden idol, and their diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains and burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, terebinth, because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, you daughters, play the harlot, and your bride commits adultery. So we see the judgment of God here because of their false worship. That's what characterizes especially the northern kingdom, but clearly is a problem in the southern kingdom as well. And ultimately is what's going to lead to the Babylon, Babylonian captivity at the end of the book, um, as is described. Um, Israel has departed from their God. And therefore, though God is hundreds of years forbearing them, eventually he is going to bring them into captivity. And that's going to begin a little sooner in the north as we begin to get closer to that in this chapter even. So um, let's go on and read about the next king um, in verses 13 to 16. So still focused on the north. Shalom, son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned one month in Samaria. So let me pause there for a second. I think it's helpful to see that Uzziah, or Azariah, as he's also called, is a constant reference point because of his long reign in the south. He is frequently mentioned as a timing of when these transitions happen in the north. And it's very frequent, obviously. We went from six months, now um, we have a king that's only reigned one month. It says in verse 14, Then Menahem, son of Gadi, went up from Tirzah and, be, and came to Samaria, and struck Shalom, son of Jabesh, in Samaria, and killed him and became king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Shalom and his conspiracy which he made, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Then Menahem struck Tibsah and all who were in it and its borders from Terza because they did not open to him. Therefore he struck it and ripped up all its women who were with child. Horrific, horrific butchery of the king of the north here. Because the city didn't welcome him or receive him, he does a terribly destructive thing um, as an example of his vengeance, I guess, but uh, a very horrible, horrible thing 
the kind of thing that in the past would have only been done by foreign nations attacking Israel. But now it's being done by the leaders of Israel to the people of Israel. So we have a horrible decline that's happening in the northern kingdom and destruction is not far away. Let's go on and read in 17 to 22 um, about more of this. It says, In the 39th year of Azariah, Uzziah, king of Judah, Menahem, son of Gadi, became king over Israel and reigned 10 years. So, a little longer than some of the other recent ones. What did he do? Well, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Surprise. He did not depart for all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. Now, Paul, king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Paul a thousand talents of silver, so that his hands might be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his rule. Then Menahem exacted the money from Israel, even from all the mighty men of wealth, from each man fifty shekels of silver to pay the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria returned and did not remain there in the land. Now the rest of the acts of Menahem and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Menahem slept with his fathers, and Pekahiah, his son, became king in his place. All right, so we have a, a man now ruling for 10 years, which is a little longer than the other recent ones. Um, but of course, he does evil. He's consistent in carrying out the uh, sins of Jeroboam the first that he had started when the north became separate in the first place. But now we have the king of Assyria attacking Israel, and this is going to be what becomes the northern kingdom's undoing. Assyria is the nation that God will use to judge the northern kingdom, and we see the beginning of that happening here. Now, he pays him off. And that seems to work for a while. But he's going to be back. It kind of reminds me of uh, the U.S. for a long time, I think maybe sort of still is the policy, but has this policy of we don't deal with terrorists. We don't make deals with terrorists. Why don't you make deals with terrorists? Because if you are in the habit of making deals, guess what you're going to get? More of the same. Right? Because they'll learn the method works. Well, this man pays them off, but that's only a temporary stay on what's going to continue to happen. Right? Um, this continues to lead to the decline of Israel, which we know ultimately is because of their sins of idolatry, their forsaking of the Lord, and his judgment. So in that sense, aside from their repentance and turning back to the Lord, there's not ultimately going to be an avoidance of this outcome. But they don't do that. And we see repeatedly with all the kings taking over, none of them lead the people into repentance of the idolatry. They all continue it. They continue to promote, encourage, and allow walking away from the Lord and serving false gods. And ultimately, that's going to lead to their destruction. All right, so he, he dies, and his son uh, becomes king. So we pick up in 23 to 26 about his son. 
So let's read there. It says, In the fiftieth year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, son of Manatham, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned two years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. Then Pekah, son of Ramaliah, his officer, conspired against him and struck him in Samaria in the castle of the king's house with Argob and Arya, and with him were fifty men of the Gileadites, and he killed him and became king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah, or Pekahiah, and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. I, I apologize, these names are not normal familiar names to me, and so I uh, mix them up sometimes here. But um, And then, as we've discussed before, sometimes they have the same names, right, even though they're different people. Um, but another short rule, two years, right? Now, this is the last father-son combo in the northern kingdom. This is the last one. So we had Jehu, had multiple generations, which even that was rare in the northern kingdom. Um, and then we have this father-son, which between the two of them, we had 10 years and two years. So even that was only 12 years total, very short. And then we have another conspiracy. So we have this constant turmoil in the nation. And it's interesting to think about what would that be like if you're one of the people living at that time? It's got to be terribly concerning, right? This constant turmoil in leadership. Now, while we saw earlier with the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, which were primarily ministries in the northern kingdom, we saw that there were remnants of believers in the north. But you remember Elijah's complaint to the Lord, right? When he has the big mountaintop experience with Mount Carmel and God sends the fire on the sacrifice that's been drenched in water and it consumes that sacrifice and the people are like, whoa, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, right? It seemed like a turning might be happening in the north, but then Jezebel gets word of all this and then sends some people after Elijah and then he runs away in fear and, and Elijah's had a long journey. He's very worn out and in fairness to Elijah, he probably had expectations that after such a dramatic thing, there would have been a wider spread turning to the Lord after that, but he's seen evidence there isn't, and that Ahab is going to continue to be in power. So Elijah is quite discouraged. And what does he say? I'm the only one left in Israel, right? And what's God's answer? I have 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Now, in one sense, to Elijah's attack or, or accusation that he's the only one, 7,000 is a lot. But on the other hand, if you think about the nation of Israel, how many people are in the nation of Israel? I don't know exact numbers, but it's got to be at least hundreds of thousands. There's been lots of wars and fighting, perhaps millions. So 7,000 isn't much. It's a remnant. It's a very small remnant. And that was during the time of a prominent ministry 
of Elijah. That number may even be smaller at this time. So the nation is full of wicked people. And I think there's a principle involved that we should think about and is a bit concerning because I think in America, we're becoming a smaller and smaller minority in America. I have no idea what the numbers are. I'm confident we have more than 7,000, okay? But we're becoming a smaller and smaller minority. But I think we see in the kings, and, and this is important to remember because I, I don't know if I've emphasized this enough. These kings in the north especially are wicked. But it would be wrong to assume the kings are the only ones who are wicked. The nation is full of wicked people. So often what happens is people get the kinds of leaders they deserve. God allows them to have terrible leaders because they're wicked, unfaithful people. And it's part of God's judgment on them for their wickedness. And I think at times we, we maybe see some of that or get glimpses of that in America too. If we get a good leader, it is the mercy of God, right? And ultimately we're all sinners and we never deserve in one sense a good leader. But we see this principle, I think, throughout the kings. They get wicked leaders because much of the nation is wicked. The leadership is like the people. The leaders come from the people. <laughs> so, God gives them wicked kings because that's what they are, and ultimately it's leading to their destruction. Um, this is the beginning of it. So, uh, we have really in verse uh, uh, 30, uh, and that we see, okay, a transition, but we see that the people are... Uh, beginning to be taken captive by Assyria, and that ultimately um, is going to happen in full in 722 BC. At this time, it's roughly 733 BC, so it's getting really close. We've seen the king of Assyria already starting to attack, and it says in verse 29, that's the verse I was looking for. In verse 29, it says, in the days of Pekah of Israel, Tigliath Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon and Abel, Beth, Maka, and Genoa, and Kadesh, and Hazor, and Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them away captive to Assyria. That, that's what I meant to read, sorry. Um, so we see the beginnings of the Assyrian captivity starting. This is in the 730s BC. The, the dates for the final captivity where the northern kingdom is taken into Assyria is 722. So they're on the heels of it. It's about to happen. So God has been putting up with this wicked nation. He's been forbearing for a long time. But we see after hundreds of years, they have refused to repent of their idolatry, and ultimately that is what's going to lead to God sending them into Captivity and the northern kingdom being taken by Assyria. So, in conclusion, as we think about these things, God is merciful 
God is forbearing. But there's a time which he allows people to repent and change, but then there's also a time in which he will bring the judgment. And he uses nations to do this. Now, I think this is important to understand in our day and age. God has purpose for the different nations. God uses different nations to judge other nations or to limit the evil of other nations. Our family recently uh, went to New Orleans uh, before the hurricane hit again. Um, and we got to, to view the World War II Museum there. And it was very fascinating, learned lots of things, reminded of some things, learned a lot of things. And one of the things that I was reminded of is this principle that Germany was, and, and Japan were bent on wicked purposes. They were committed to wicked things. And it was God using different nations that ultimately stopped that. That's one of the ways God works in the world is he uses nations to limit the evil of other nations. It's part of God's sovereignty. So in this world we live in today, sometimes the philosophy seems to be we just need to be at peace with everyone in the world. And sure, if we can be at peace, we'd like to be. But when nations are bent on wicked and evil things, it's part of God's purpose to limit that evil in the world. And nations have a role in that. So we can't just put aside everything to be peaceful at all costs. There are times to engage in conflict to limit evil. And sadly, even sometimes God's people, like we see with the nation of Israel here, are guilty and need that judgment too. So God, while he is forbearing, long-suffering, he gives people opportunity to repent. There comes a time when they don't, where he will bring consequences for those actions. So we need to remember and praise God for his mercy and his long-suffering. And if we've done wrong, repent. We also need to pray for our leaders that they will have wisdom and handling things that come up in the world, protecting our nation and potentially others. There's a time for that. And we should pray that God works in our world. But ultimately, we need to be faithful, unlike the people of Israel were at this point. We need to be loyal to our God, even if the majority of our nation is not. We need to be faithful to seek Him, trust Him, and walk humbly with him on a daily basis. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are merciful. You do give people opportunity to repent. And I'm sure, Father, many of us in this room could give testimony of how you've been patient with us. You've worked in our hearts to bring about repentance and change. Help us, Father, to be patient with other people and give opportunity and time for you to do that in their lives, too though we can be uh, active in encouraging them to do what's right. But help us also to be patient. Help us also to be thankful for what you've done. And help us, Father, to be faithful to pray that you will continue to preserve the ability for us to worship you, to serve you. And even if you take that away, that we don't have the freedoms we currently do, help us, Father, still 
to be faithful to serve you, whatever may come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.